It's the Lord's day. Jesus is our master and our king. And so I'm really thankful that you're here with us today. This will be a little different. This Christmas message, we've already been walking through the birth narrative in Matthew over the last four weeks. And one of the things that's been explicit in the Gospel of Matthew is in chapter 2 especially, Matthew says over and over again that the reason things happened the way it did was to fulfill what the prophets said. And that's even the way that I preached last week. I just went through the Old Testament prophets and said, what did they mean originally? How were they fulfilled ultimately in Christ? And what do they mean for us today? Because that's Matthew's angle to tell the story. And so maybe four or six months ago, as we were setting our sermon series out, we said, hey, Christmas Sunday, we should just preach from a prophet and a text that people don't expect is about Christmas. But it is. For Jesus came to fulfill all that the prophet said. And that's what Jesus said in Luke 24. As these two gentlemen were walking on the road to Emmaus, grieving and kicking the dirt because the crucifixion had happened. And they were mourning and upset. And Jesus walked, the resurrected Christ walked alongside them and they didn't recognize him. And Jesus said this to them. He said, oh, foolish ones, slow in heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he interpreted for them in all the scriptures, all the things concerning himself. And so we could turn to any prophet on Christmas Sunday. And this is a prophecy fulfilled ultimately in the incarnation of Jesus. It's a large section. The reason it's a large section is because I'm selfish. I'll be doing a preaching workshop in Boston at the end of February, and I was given the assignment to preach a text between Isaiah 60 and Isaiah 66. And I said, well, we already told our congregation, or our, our staff decided we preach from a text somewhere in the prophets. And so I said, I want to find a text that points us to Jesus on Christmas Day somewhere between Isaiah 60 and 66. And so we've already read part of it. But as I read chapter 65, verse 1, and what you have there printed in your insert, I want you to know the reason I've chosen this large section is because the, the verb to look shows up in multiple places. Look down, the prophet says in chapter 63, verse 15. Look down. Chapter 64, verse 1. Look down and come down. Chapter 66, verse 2, the Lord's going to say, this is the one I'm looking for. So as I read, I want you to think with me about that, that, that word, to look or to see. What are you looking for? What is God looking for? Let's stand and let's hear God's word read. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1, printed in your outline. The Lord says through Isaiah, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me or look for me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own desires, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs, who spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent. But I will repay, I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. 
I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Now jump to verse 17 of Isaiah 65. There's still hope. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in, in it the sound of weeping and the city of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. This is the word of God. Father, help us, we pray, in this time to see Jesus, to understand what you have done in Christ on this Christmas Lord's Day. That is our prayer, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So, Jesus came to fulfill all that the prophets saw, including and especially this. It's a big section, and I encourage you maybe even to have your bulletin that has the part we already read plus what I just read. And I'm not going to, it takes almost longer to read it than it will take for me to explain it. It's a very simple section. You have the, re the request or the ask of the prophet, and you have a response given by the Lord. That's what all those texts, they all fit together in that regard, just that simply. The prophet is going to make a plea on behalf of God's people. And God, the Lord himself, is going to give an answer. So what is the request? The request in verse 15 of chapter 63 is, look down. See, God's people have been in exile. They've been away from the land, from the temple. There's no security. There's no rest. And they're basically through Isaiah saying, Lord, when you look down at us now, where is your zeal and your might? Where's the stirring of your heart of compassion? Because it doesn't seem present. It seems like you're holding your compassion back. 63 verse 15. Here's how the prophet says it. Things are so hard. Abraham doesn't even know us anymore. It's as if... Israel doesn't acknowledge us. In other words, we're like strangers to the people of promise. These are hard times. They're so hard, Isaiah prays it like this. He says, why do you make us wander? Why do you harden our hearts 
so we can't fully fear you. You ever had to be so bad in a relationship where someone looks at you and acknowledges it's bad and says it's all your fault? That's what Isaiah is saying on behalf of God's people. It's so bad. Why do you harden our hearts so that we don't give you what you deserve? We don't fear you. There's distress in these words. Middle of verse 17 of chapter 63. If you just look down and see us, would you return? There's a request. Return for the sake of your servants. Make it like it used to be. When we had security and we, we knew your promises for a little while, but now things have gotten so bad, we're like people that you never rescued in the first place. We're like people over which you have never ruled. It's kind of like we're outside of our own story now. We're no longer known or called by your name. It's pretty heavy, desperate prayer that Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God's people. And I ask you on this Christmas day, maybe it's been something over this past year. Maybe it's what your, your heart feels right now. Have you ever been there as a believer? Like you believe in the promises God has given. Almost to the point that you know it'd be much easier just not to believe, just to pack it in. You know that God says, I'll give peace and rest and restore you to me. You know the word tells us that his spirit has given us power that's greater than all our sin. We know that God says, I'll cover all of your shame, but we still feel like we walk around with it stuck to our heels. Or he says, I'll forgive you all our guilt, but our conscience convicts us with guilt that will not go away. It torments us. We know there's promises of justice and mercy, but it looks like justice and mercy are not going to prevail. Do you know this desperation where you say, Lord, look down. Look down, please. Could this be your prayer? The Bible continues in chapter 64, this request, this ask. It goes from look down to saying, Lord, come down. Verse 1 of chapter 64, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Rend is kind of old language, but let's let it be as rich as it should be. Oh, that you would just rip open the heavens and come down like you once did. And, and the prophet remembers here, Lord, we remember when you came down and you did awesome things that we didn't expect. Remember, Lord, when you came down and you rescued your people out of Egypt and you took us to the foot of the mountain and the mountain quaked and there was fire and there was smoke. And we had our mediary, Moses. We were afraid without him, but you spoke your word. We were your people. We worshiped you. Would you do that again? Come down again and make your name known. Shake the earth like you once did. Do something to fix this. Do something to bridge the gap. None of our efforts have worked. None of our efforts have restored all the pain. None of our efforts can go back and erase the past. None of our efforts can remove the guilt and shame. No matter what we try, it doesn't work. No other God can come and do anything for those who make the gods out of their hands become just like them, very impotent. No other ideology, especially as we look around our world, is bringing peace. 64 verse 4. But from of old, God, no one has heard or seen a God like you who acts and does things, glorious things, for those who wait for you. 
And so let's just enter in as if Isaiah is here with us, praying on our behalf, on behalf of God's people. And he's saying, we're here waiting. We're still waiting. Think of yesterday. The power kept going out of my house. I don't know about you. For a while, we were like, what happened in our neighborhood? And it happened again, and it happened again. Until I read online on my phone when my internet wasn't connected, you know. The power grid was going to be turned off. 5% of Bright Ridge's customers were going to have their power turned off for 15-minute increments. And in our house, we were like, well, should we start the laundry? Do we have time? When's it going to come on again? We're waiting for power and light to come. And that's what Isaiah is praying on behalf of God's broken people who look around them and say, nothing seems to be working. These are hard times. We're miserable. When are you going to come in power again? But look in chapter 64, verse 5. For God's prophet and his people aren't foolish. They know that if he does come, he has a right to be angry. We Know that you have been angry, for we have sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. Shall we be saved? We're all like one who is unclean. We're polluted. Our sin should blow us away like chaff. You can hear the prophet saying, we're, we're fading here, God. We know that among us no one calls your name like we ought. None of us urgently rouses ourselves to take hold of you in repentance and obedience like we ought. And it's so bad, God, it's almost like you don't want to be found. Like you're hiding from us. Here we are melting down, suffocated by our sin, and we can't find you. Again, I asked, has that ever sounded like a prayer of yours? God of heaven and earth, if you don't look down and then come down and break through heaven, there is nothing I can do. I will waste away. In our pollution and in our sin, we can't find you on our own. There's too much obstruction from what I think about, from what my heart gives itself to, let alone the deceptive culture around us that entices. Could this be your prayer? But the ask continues. Chapter 64, verse 8. Knowing that God, if he does break through, his anger is justified. Look at how the prophet culminates his prayer. Now, please, O oh Lord, you're our father. We're your creation. We're the clay. You're the potter. So please do not be so terribly angry and don't forever remember our sin. Behold, please, look, we are your people. Our fathers knew you. They once built a house and, and in that house they worshiped and met with you, but that house is gone. All the places you gave us are in ruins. Where do we go to meet with you now? You sense the desperation. Chapter 64, verse 12 is one of the hardest parts to me because I think, I think we can resonate. The prophet on behalf of God's people basically says, so God, you're going to let us get this far and then you're going to stop? It's like you're going to give us a hint of it. Our sin gets in the way. And then here's the words the prophet says. Will you restrain yourself from doing something about what you look upon? Have you ever been in this place? Have you begged God, the Lord, the Father, your maker, the potter, to look down and come down and break through? 
in your heart, in your home, in light of your sin, in your marriage, in your relationships? How does God respond to this? And that's where we go. And I will tell you, kind of knowing I was going to split the passage up between the service and the sermon, we need to let verse 1 be heard the way it should be. It's a horribly painful verse to hear. Because if we're God's people and we say, God, look down, come down, then we want to think of God's mercy and grace. If he says, okay, of course, I was waiting on you to look. But that is not what he says in verse 1. Hear this the way it is spoken by God through the prophet to his people. 65 verse 1, I was ready to be sought. I was ready to be found by those who did not look for me. I said, here I am, here I am. I spread out my hands all day long, but it was to those who were not looking. It was to a rebellious people who were looking for something else. It's almost this tone of, I'm sorry, it's too late. That's the tone of Isaiah 65.1. That's the Lord's response. I was ready to be found, but I was not being looked to by a people who rather wanted to look after and walk after things that were no good, after things that were false or temporary or fleeting or dangerous, a people who provoked me as I looked on. And we read in 65 verse 6 that God says, So I have looked, and I cannot be silent any longer. I must repay both your iniquities and those of your fathers. So that's a summary of chapter 65, 1 to 16. Essentially is this. I have looked, and because when I was looking, you weren't looking, I must now judge by what I have seen. 65 verse 7. Because you insulted me as I watched you in your idolatry on the hills. I watched you as you forgot my glory on the mountain. That's 65 verse, 17, verse 11, excuse me. 65 verse 12, see, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. Because when I was there, you were not looking. Because you did what was evil when my eyes looked on. Now I must judge. And that's where God goes. 65 verse 13, I will judge and bring consequence on those who aren't looking for me. You will be hungry, but my servants who look to me will still eat. You'll be thirsty, but my servants, they will still drink. You'll be put to shame, but my servants, they'll rejoice. You are going to wail, you who don't look for me. But my servants who look for me will sing songs of gladness. You will be put to death, but the repentant servants who look to me will be called by my name and will rejoice. It's a profound answer. The Lord is essentially saying, if you don't look to me, I will judge. And because you weren't looking to me before this moment, I must still judge. So we ask, well, what hope is there? Well, we let the prophet continue. And there's that glorious section in your bulletin that starts in verse 17. It's a rather famous part of the Old Testament. Behold, for those who do look to me, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. So right now on this Christmas Sunday, the posture we must have is to say, I will then wait and see, Lord, I want to look for what you say will happen. And when he fully breaks through, what will happen? He says it's going to be so glorious that all the former things that he looked upon and that we've looked upon, they'll be forgotten and remembered no more. They won't even come to mind. Chapter 65, verse 18 is an and, and 19 are amazing. He says this, when I break through, 
You who look to me will be glad and rejoice forever at what I recreate. So you'll be glad and rejoice forever. But look at verse 19. I, God says, I will rejoice and be glad in you, my people. Mutual rejoicing. No more will there be weeping or distress. Verse 20, no more will there be any more effect of sin. This is that section that says there won't be an infant who lives but a few days. No more effect of a fallen world. No more will a life be cut short. And he says, when you look on what I'm going to do, all the good things you want are going to come to you. You will build houses still. You'll tend your vineyards still. You'll have food and possessions still. And everything you do, it will not be in vain. Here's a translation of that, my translation. Everything you do will not end in pain. There's so many good things that I and my family mostly, that's our world, right? That I feel, have you ever felt like we've finally gotten somewhere good and then it ends in pain? Makes you question all the good. It'll be so good, it will not end in pain for it will not be in vain. You'll be looking for me and I'll be looking for you. You'll cry out for me and I will already be there to answer. It will be a total reversal. And that's that image, right? A wolf and a lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. It's going to be backwards and upside down and right side up and different than you can comprehend. The serpent, the evil one, the tempter, the deceiver is going to once eat the dust again. Be destroyed. Sin will be no more. There will be no more pain or hurt anywhere on my holy mountain. And so the prophet says to God's people, from where you sit right now, wait for it and look for it. Wait and see. It will come. But I've said nothing about Christmas. See, see, when the prophets look forward and they said, wait for it, this will come. You know, from the vantage point we sit, if Jesus said all the prophets were pointing ultimately to himself, we don't say it will come. We, we look back and say, all the prophets said would come, have begun, and have already started to come. Everything that is said in this section, everything has begun because God ripped through the heavens and came down to earth and took on flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. God, if you would just come, and now he says to us, I did, and I have, and I will again. And I think even in this passage, we have hints of the incarnation of Jesus. 64 verse 8 and following, you're our father, please don't be angry. Like we want you to come, and, and, and we would build a house for you if we could. And God says, no, what house can you build for me? Chapter 66, verse 1. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What place would you build for me? And yet in the incarnation of God, in Jesus the Son, did not God condescend gloriously and actually show up in a house in the form of a baby? Even though the scriptures tell us in John chapter 1 that his glory couldn't be contained, he came as God himself, and he tabernacled among us. He housed himself in our world, not inside of a house, but in the form of his own son. But why did Jesus come? A couple weeks ago, we looked at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. His name shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their 
sin. But what does that really mean? Isaiah tells us to be saved from sin is to be saved from what? The wrath of God, who if he breaks through the heavens, he must be angry and punish our sin. And isn't that also hinted at in this text? That Jesus, when he came to save us from our sin, he saved us through his cross. Can you think of any place in the New Testament that is any more visual about heaven being ripped apart? Yes, he came as a child and the wise men went and worshipped him and a star led them to that house. Yes, that is enough, isn't it? But where is the Bible most explicit that heaven was ripped open and holiness came amidst the unholy? But on the cross. Let me read to you from Luke chapter 23. It was now about the sixth hour, which is noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Him who was the light of the world had darkness descend upon him. While the sun's light failed, Luke writes, and then the curtain of the temple was ripped in two. And then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, certainly this man was innocent, was righteous, was holy. For heaven had been ripped open and the holy had come and bore the wrath due to the profane. And all the crowds who had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned to their home, beating their chests. When I read that this week, beating their chest, all I could think of is that's kind of the way I've imagined Isaiah writing chapter 63 and 64. Beating his chest on behalf of God's people saying, if you come, we should be destroyed. For we have been in our sins far too long and we still don't say no to our sin like we are. But when God came in the flesh, God came to save. And he suffered the curse of the wrath that were due, but he also was resurrected unto life so that we would know what? All the promises that Isaiah writes about in full, a new heaven and a new earth where all the former things, including our sin, are no longer remembered, where weeping and death and cries of distress are gone. And so what I'm going to do as we close up before we take the Lord's Supper, I'm going to read to you in a moment from Revelation 21. And it sounds almost identical to Isaiah 65. And do you know what's in between Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21? Christmas, Jesus coming in the flesh. And so here's my request as I read this and then as we take the Lord's Supper. I think I already said this. I don't know what I say in the first or second service sometimes, but we have a time on Christmas morning our kids are allowed to come down the stairs, right? And you just hear the pitter-patter footsteps and you hear usually Quaid trying to wake his older siblings and you hear an older sibling say, stop it, I want to sleep. And you hear all this stuff. Because the desperate excitement of what awaits is too much to contain. 
So on this Christmas Sunday, as I read from Revelation 21, that is my request. That you would be desperate as you hear it. Because, you know, that's what God looks for. And that's what he says in the last verse of our bulletin, chapter 66, verse 2. He says, you, know, you want to know which, what, what person I look for now? One who's humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. That's what God is looking for right now. And you know what? Humility and contrition and trembling kind of, I would say, wrap it up into a word. Looks like people who desperately believe and need it to be true. So listen to these words from Revelation 21 and desperately depend on it. John writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out from heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Who is speaking? Jesus on the throne. Who broke through from heaven and we'll do so again. Lord, would you help us to believe this desperately, to need it, to beat our chests in desperation for its truth, and then to believe in the comfort offered to us in the gospel because of the incarnation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.